Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about climate crisis and the way we act or often seem to ignore it. Arno Kopecki is an award-winning journalist and author of The Environmentalist's Dilemma, Promise and Peril in an Age of Climate Crisis. In this book, he digs into some difficult questions. How do we confront the challenge of our times? Does change have to be radical or is the nature of progress incremental? Is hope naive or indispensable? And what can we learn from our history, even some of the darkest chapters? Here's his story. Let's jump into things. Uh, I want to ask about a statement that you open this book with. You write that things have never been so good for humanity, nor so dire for the planet. Could you expand on that? <laughs> well, it, it does unleash a uh, cascade of caveats saying so, but I, I stand by it, actually. I, I really think that this is a really good time to be alive for a lot of us. And I know that is not true for all of us. There are 8 billion humans on the planet and there's an immense amount of suffering and injustice and depression going on today. Um, but that has, I would say, always been the case throughout history, the history of our species. What has not always been the case is there hasn't always been a universal declaration of human rights. There hasn't always been motorized transport and satellite communication you know, I, I think there has been an immense amount of unambiguous progress in the state of human affairs on this planet. My wife delivers babies for a living. And if you look at infant and maternal mortality, it is orders of magnitude less today than at any point in human history anywhere on Earth. I have a number of friends right now who would be dead if they had given birth 100 years ago before C-sections and other things were invented. I also have a six-year-old daughter and I think for her to be born and raised here and now, the number of options available to her are almost infinitely greater than most other places in history that a woman could have been born. Now, not all, of course, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I do want to be careful and, and not to you know, ignore if I was a residential school survivor or if I was you know, a Yemeni refugee or... Mm -hmm any number of people in the world who are suffering immensely right now. I, I, you know, I really want to stress that I, that I want to be careful not to overlook their plight, but um, I think it's really important to acknowledge the many things that, that have been fought for, for the quality of life that we have today, both materially and socially, because if you, if you forget those things, and I, I think the environmental community has a tendency to overlook those things, when they make the other half of the of the equation that you opened with, which is that things have never been so dire for the planet. And so I think it's important to hold both those statements in your head when you're engaging with the subjects that I'm trying to engage with in this book. And so the other half that this that life has never been so dire for the rest of the species on this earth. I mean, there are, you know, I could reel off the numbers in the last few years, there have been scientific reports showing that there's a million species on earth on the brink of extinction right now. I live in Vancouver, so salmon are on the verge of extinction from this great salmon river, the Fraser River that runs through Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first news items that I became aware of as a young man uh, when I was still a teenager was the collapse of the cod fishery on the East Coast. Mm. Um, the Amazon basin is on the brink of flipping into becoming a savanna instead of a rainforest. It just goes on and on. There's a litany of collapse and destruction in the natural, what we call the natural world. And so those, those two things, this, you know, this with caveats, but still true improvement of human life on earth, uh, taking place with this sort of perversely inverse relationship with ecological health, that to me has just created this immense cognitive dissonance mm. that sort of reverber reverberates through all kinds of public discourse today. And as an environmental journalist, uh, I've just been really struck by that dissonance and these, these sort of conflicting narratives. Uh, you know, how can it be true that 
through all my life, there's been a greater, more and more abundance when I go to the grocery store or to the liquor store or to the coffee shop. You know, the coffee is way better now than it was when I was 15 and started drinking coffee. <laughs> uh, you know, there's big things and little things, but there's been all kinds of ways in which, you know, I'm getting these signals that, wow, there's more and more of everything. I talked about salmon earlier, salmon are going extinct, and yet they're still very easy to get a nice plate of salmon anywhere at a restaurant or at the mm -hmm. grocery store. So, yeah, I wanted to address, um, you know, what seems like a paradox, and it's uh, it's known as the environmentalist's paradox. And then as I started to look at it, uh, that paradox turned into a series of dilemmas, which which gave rise to the book. Uh-huh. One, one other image stuck to me, especially about the intro to your book, and it was that of being on a yacht sailing towards the edge of Niagara Falls. Uh, yeah. You know, th this idea of, and I, I suppose maybe it's important to define this this concept of we too, as you have already, you know, we being, um, you know, we, we passengers on the yacht being those of us for whom life has improved, uh, for whom the quality of life has improved. But could you maybe just uh, get into the analogy of, of the yacht on uh, sailing towards the edge and the options presented to uh, the, the passengers on the boat? For sure. So in that, in that analogy, I, I, I'm kind of saying, you know, well, once you become aware of, of this predicament that life is good, but we're, we're, you know, sailing towards disaster, I, I took that literally and, and said, well, it feels for those of us living in the middle class of the West, so-called Western world, people like myself, um, it, it can feel as though we're on, on a party yacht. Uh, and the, the yacht is, you know, on the brink of Niagara Falls sailing towards the edge of this waterfall and you know life is so good but oh my gosh that it's all about to collapse into 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 destruction and and I think once you become aware of that you know you you become sort of like the person on the Titanic or on this imaginary yacht and then what are the options available to you you know how do you engage with this well you can you know you can you can ignore it and continue to party on the party yacht and have a good time and, until it's over Mm -hmm. uh, you can sort of go numb and just be shocked and paralyzed at the enormity of the situation and how hard it is to, to turn it around and just sort of stare into the abyss. And Or option three, you can fight like hell against all odds to turn the ship around and prevent it from going over the edge of the falls. And uh, as I said in, that, in, the, in the book, and it's true, I think I reverberate between all three of those options. I, you know, sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes I just want to have a good time and forget it all, and and I do. And right. often I find myself, you know, I, I'm a writer, so I would be staring out the window anyways, but uh, maybe I stare a little longer than I need to, just sort of lost and like, how do we actually do anything about this? And then other times I'll get up and shout and, you know, I'll write a book about it and I'll do what I can in my little corner of, of this earth uh, to raise a bit of awareness and you know, you wondered what is the what's the best thing to do? How can I make a difference? This problem is so immense. There's so much cultural, civilizational inertia pulling us toward that waterfall uh, that one instantly starts to feel pretty puny when you mm. do, if you do, try to engage with it and and turn the ship around. Mm. Um, I, I will. I just want to add though, uh, on because I'm in in insatiably uh, hopeful. Uh, I, I do. I do think once you get involved, one of the gifts of getting involved is, is that you see how many other people are involved, and that uh, nobody is alone in this struggle. And in fact, there is an immense amount of community, and there is a certain joy and solace in in just being in that community. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, if I'm thinking about the scope of the problems we're facing, and uh, I mean, certainly now in 2021, awareness about climate crisis is uh, higher than it's probably ever been. There are still climate deniers, but they have shrunk, I would think, by now. Uh, it's, it's very hard to dispute the irrefutability of, of what's happening. I guess the question then is, why are we still so bad at acting on all of this? Uh, and there's probably many answers to that, but uh, but uh, what, what do you think? <laughs> well, uh, there are many answers to that. Well, uh, you know, one answer that is obvious is just the vested interests in the in the status quo uh, have a huge amount um, of of power, and so just you know, fossil fuel interests have deep pockets. They they pay to put a lot of politicians into place, 
and and keep them there and to slow down you know regulations and, and obstruct regulations that would actually meaningfully impact fossil fuel production and deployment so i that is I think the most immediate and obvious answer, and it's one that a lot of brilliant thinkers and writers and analysts have, have devoted a lot of time to addressing. And I don't want to take away from that. Um, but I also think that this is partly a matter of, of, of human, of the human condition, to be honest. And I think for, because of the very paradox that I just was talking about of how good life is, and a lot of the goodness of our life uh, is owed directly to this explosion of, of cheap, abundant energy that fossil fuels provided us. And uh, that enabled this, you know, this really one time, perhaps short lived burst of prosperity uh, that had a number of just wonderful knock on effects from, you know, motorized transport and to all the medicines and agriculture that, you know, enabled us to feed, but also then that with that material basis of well-being also from that sprung a sense of equality and, and human rights and women's rights and and democracy and and all of these other you know social uh markers of 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 well-being I, I would say and so I, you know I, I think there's a there's a part of us that that just you know again I know I always say us and we so I want to be careful about the, using that royal we but I, I do think that many humans have a hard time sort of dissociating or decoupling, you know, the source of so much prosperity. And, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, well, we have to get off of oil. Uh, but it, you know, now I'll shift to one more time again. And it, and, it, and it takes a real imaginative leap, I think, to think, okay, well, how, what next? Can we really do this? Can we really change our whole society without sacrificing all the good things that that oil and, and gas have brought us? I, I grew up in Alberta. And so in a place like that, it's especially hard to imagine because oil and gas is just culturally seen as the wellspring of all goodness. <laughs> mm -hmm. But even, I would, you know, Canada is the world's fourth greatest producer of oil and gas. So I think that Alberta culture even though Alberta is sort of a caricature of, of denial, uh, especially at the you know provincial government level. Um, I don't think the rest of Canada is all that extreme, but I do think oil and gas has sort of saturated our national imagination in a way that limits not just politicians, but also a lot of everyday citizens who perhaps even subconsciously just can't really imagine living well without having oil and gas power our good life. And that's where I think writers and artists and podcasters have a role to play, uh, which is in just seeding those, those seeds of imagination and courage and, and, and you know, a belief that, that we can actually get off of oil and gas and, and decarbonize and, you know, electrify everything renewably and all of those solutions that are out there but are just you know they seem impossible and so people don't you know they they don't vote for politicians who actually seriously want to do those things hmm. um, because it you know and, and that's not necessarily a politician's fault i mean people come down hard on on justin trudeau uh and i have my criticisms of his of him as well for sure but you know, look at how hard that guy had to fight to implement a carbon tax, a national carbon tax. I mean, his government almost fell. You had, you know, four plus provinces take him to the Supreme Court and, and you know, this massive rise of conservative power in the provinces, almost in direct opposition to a, a piffling little carbon tax, you know. And, and so that, I think, is a matter for, you know, that is everyday citizens need to be convinced more than politicians so that when a politician comes along and, 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 and pitches something more bold than just a carbon tax, he or she can, can be assured that people will continue to vote for that vision. I want to get back to that core problem and uh, the other problems you present in the book. But maybe, um, maybe we could in, in just go back for a moment. Uh, you talked about growing up in Alberta. How does a kid from Alberta become an environmental journalist? What's, what's the path or the, the story? 
Well, <laughs> there's many roads leading to that room. Um, what can I say? I grew up uh, in Edmonton near the University of Alberta uh, in a region called, uh, the riding is called Edmonton Strathcona. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a quite a progressive riding uh, and not just by Alberta standards. It's a, it's a real lefty hood. Uh, it's had an NDP member of parliament for, for a long time when, when everywhere else in the province was conservative. So in the book, I profiled uh, the current uh, and most recent NDP member of parliament who went to the same high school as I did, Heather McPherson. I didn't know her before. Uh, she's just a few years older than me. Um, but she came to power and, uh, you know, as having lived a life as a progressive uh, advocate for human rights and environmental sustainability in the NGO community. And then in 2019, she ran for office and became uh, the member of parliament. And she, at that point, uh, she was the only member of parliament in all of Alberta, in fact, in all of the prairies from the Rocky Mountains to Winnipeg, basically, she was the only non-conservative member of parliament. And uh, so I, I, basically, she was the only member of parliament in the prairies who believed in climate change and who didn't think climate change was a lefty hoax. Mm. And so I was really fascinated by that position that she had thrust herself into. And, and uh, so I spent a year hanging out with her and talking to her um, that year was sort of thrown sideways by the pandemic. And, and one of the interesting things was, you know, environmental considerations kind of had to go by the wayside a little bit because none of her constituents were asking about climate change. They were all asking how they could survive and access, serve and get home from abroad and all those million things that came up in those, those early weeks and months and, and stretching forth. Um, really straight off topic here a little bit as far as how does, how does the guy from, from Edmonton, Alberta become a, a lefty environmentalist? Um, again, though, I think, you know, it's a mistake to, one of the reasons I wanted to write this profile, not just of Heather McPherson, but also of, of Edmonton and Alberta, is to sort of poke some holes in the caricature of Alberta, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, the leadership has brought upon itself. I do think that the provincial government, the UCP under Jason Kenney is a caricature of, of climate denial and, and all the worst things that, that come around that, not just environmentally, but you know, harboring sort of bigoted white supremacists in their ranks and, and all, all of these crazy things. Uh, but that is not Alberta, I would say. Uh, just like Donald Trump is not America. Mm -hmm. There's certainly that there um, and, you know, you don't want to ignore it, but it's, you know, the, the Alberta just had civic elections and, and Calgary and Edmonton both elected super progressive mayors uh, who are taking up the mantle from the previous two progressive mayors. So there is a lot of progressive uh, politics and culture and arts uh, in, in Alberta, certainly in the neighborhood where I grew up in Strathcona. And if anything, I think they're more progressive and more badass for being where they are. It's easy to be an environmentalist in Vancouver where Greenpeace and David Suzuki were born and, and everything else. Uh, to be a hardcore progressive left-wing advocate uh, surrounded by some of the rural conservatism that, that literally runs Alberta and has for a long time, uh, that's pretty badass. And I am proud to to follow in that tradition in, in whatever humble way that I can. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose, and I, I recognize my, my question is clumsily asked, but, uh, but also just to hear about the, the history of, of what brought you to today. If, if I'm thinking back at, you know, different climate crises or moments that sparked that sort of passion or fuel for you, what were those historical events? Was it the, was it the COD uh, situation? Was it something else? that spurred you on to, to who you are and, and what you what got you interested yeah, in, in environment you know that it is a very good question it gets a little bit navel gazing i don't know if, if people really care what what got arno what was arno's first moment of <laughs> environmental awareness i mean the, the honest truth is i've always been as much of a sort of writer and and imbiber of stories and literature was really my first love and then environmental concerns got grafted onto that. I'm not a huge outdoorsman. I couldn't survive in the woods with an ax for a week if, uh, if I was plopped into the middle of, of the forest. Um, you know, my parents took me camping and, and I liked the, you know, Banff National Park as much as anyone else. 
although it turns out to have very racist origins. So that's something I wrote about, um, just the way that uh, all the First Nations were evacuated or evicted, I should say, from, from that national park, like all the others, to make room for it. Uh, but for me, I've always just seen, I think I came to seeing environmental issues as the grand story of our times. Mm. And I really saw it as, you know, as a first, as I think a reader and an imbiber of stories. And, you know, at that time, probably when I first became aware of it, I was still, you know, infatuated with Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and these big stories of, you know, underdogs taking on huge evil empires and emperors and, and those things. And, and the environmental struggle, as I became aware of it, I don't even know how that happened, but I, you know, in high school, I started to learn about climate change and, and environmental collapse and all of its many forms and species extinction. And yeah, the cod disappeared. And, and at some point, uh, I just sort of thought, wow, this is an incredible story. And it's really the defining story of, of my generation, if not my century. And, and as I started to become a writer, I thought, well, this is a story I want to tell. It's fascinating mm. and it's horrifying and it's compelling and mesmerizing and it, the stakes could not be higher. And there's all of these heroes and villains and, and, you know, it's very morally ambiguous. And, and as I've gotten older, it's just become more and more of an incredible story to tell. And, and uh, of course now it's becoming every day less of a story going on out there and more of uh more of one that impacts my daily life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the name heather mcpherson earlier i want to come back to her just for a moment uh sure. because throughout this book the environmentalist dilemma you meet with different people right you meet with heather uh you also meet with uh, members of extinction rebellion vancouver too yeah. different groups, uh, you know, I think both working towards similar aims, but if, if Heather is working from the inside, uh, the establishment, you know, an Extinction Rebellion is an example of of a group that would probably sooner see the end of establishment or a, diff- a very different kind of establishment. Um, yeah. You know, one side faces criticism for not doing enough, the other side probably for shaking things up too much. What surprised mm-hmm. you the most from either of them, meeting with Heather, meeting with Extinction Rebellion, and, and the time you spent with them? Yeah, you know, I mean, so one of the questions that really animated uh, this book from start to finish was how can we engage with the story of our times, of which, I, you know, obviously I see as total environmental collapse. Uh, what can any individual do? How do we respond to this? How can we not just sit in our chairs and, and drool while it all unfolds around us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tried to find a few examples of different ways that people have engaged and are engaging. And so the two sort of mirror images, one that I found or, or one of them was, you know, well, there's radical activism. You can either t- try to topple the government and that was Extinction Rebellion, uh, the Vancouver branch, mm-hmm. and, or you can enter government and join government and and try to change it from the inside. And that was Heather McPherson. Uh, And so I thought, you know, I I think both of those approaches are are very compelling. Um, I would say as far as what surprised me, you know, Heather, Heather McPherson didn't really surprise me. uh, And maybe this is boring to say, but uh, (laughs) I found her to be fascinating, but she was more or less what I expected, which was a thoughtful, person who who walks a very fine line in Alberta her own family comes from oil and you know her grandparents were pioneering oil men her husband is a lawyer who mm-hmm. works for an oil pipeline company or an oil and gas pipeline company um, you know and and she belongs to the federal version of a party that has traditionally been the workers party and in Alberta the workers are working in the oil patch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she sees herself and I see her and I think she succeeds in being a bridge between uh, communities and arguments that have become quite polarized. And I think she, so I was impressed, but not surprised at how well she can articulate some of the, the issues that are going on about, okay, well, you know, we, we can't just abandon all the oil workers and the gas workers in, in Alberta, but we need to transition very rapidly and much more rapidly than we are in a way that protects them. And, you know, she can, things that are sort of easy for you and me to say, but, but in Alberta, the atmosphere is just so polarized 
that Heather McPherson had a, a real expertise that I admired in, in, in being able to, to have some of these discussions and sort of acknowledge both sides and various perspectives. Because, you know, ultimately, I think everyone just feels threatened. And, and a lot of people who might acknowledge climate change is a reality, but their paycheck comes from the oil and gas industry. They hear, you know, if they heard me, they'd be like, oh, Arno wants to take our jobs away and ruin our lives. So, you know, screw that guy. Whereas Heather McPherson could speak uh, their language, I think. Mm. That was Heather McPherson, Extinction Rebellion. Um, another group that I admire, I, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is I, I, activism uh, is an essential force in the human ecosystem for social change. Uh, I think we owe a lot of the things that we like in our lives from the women's right to vote to any of us being allowed to vote to, you know, weekends and child labor laws, are, you know, and, and the civil rights movement. Um, none of this stuff would have happened without people marching in the streets and, and risking arrest or getting beaten up or even killed. Uh, and I think Extinction Rebellion uh, follows in that move in that spirit. And when they first arrived in England in 2018, they, they just exploded onto the world scene with this sort of celebratory, creative panache of environmental activism. You know, they parked a pink sailboat in the middle of London and shut down traffic for a week and had this festival. And it had a real impact. It, it led to the UK becoming the first country shortly thereafter uh, to declare a, an official climate emergency. So it was real. They had done amazing things. And that's after that was when sort of, you know, I call them branch plants, uh, <laughs> Extinction Rebellion chapters sprouted up all over the world and in hundreds of cities around the world, uh, including Vancouver. So I spent a year with them to see how just, you know, what's it like? What are they doing? What are they, how do they think about the world? What kind of impact are they having? And as you, you know, I, I would say I was a little bit, I am a little bit critical of them and I, I wanna be careful because my critique of Extinction Rebellion is not a critique of activism in general, where I would say, as I say in the book, I, I am a little bit like, personally, I have a hard time getting into the street and, and shouting slogans and, and joining uh, civil disobedience movements, even though I admire them. And and I think the thing that that, that throws me off a bit is for activism to succeed, you have to be just laser focused on a, a couple of core truths and you mm -hmm. sort of have to boil these big messy issues down into like their their most fundamental issues so you know in the case of extinction rebellion they're saying well uh the business of daily civilization is 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 leading to global uh, collapse of, of ecosystems therefore we have to stop global uh, the business of civilization. So they shut down traffic and they, and they stick their spokes in, 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 you know, the, the, I joined them when they shut down the Burrard street bridge. Um, that was their first big act. And, uh, so I, you know, for me, as I wrote a whole book about nuance and messiness and both looking at various sides of a coin and, and acknowledging that it's difficult to find the right way forward. And if you try to raise those points in, in a group like Extinction Rebellion, you they're quickly like, well, where's your certitude? And how, like, you look like you're thinking about compromising and, and there's, there can be no compromise. Mm -hmm. If we want to, we have to not compromise. And so I, I can appreciate that and also disagree with it. Um, I think the thing that surprised me was how little they really knew about the subject that many of them were engaged in. So a lot of them, a lot of the members that I met hadn't even heard of, you know, 350.org or some of the other groups that are, that are out there that are equally dedicated to fighting climate change and, and, and other environmental issues. And so I think a lot of people in Extinction Rebellion are sort of new or they've, they've sort of just woken up to the fact that, oh my gosh, there's this huge environmental crisis. Who can I join? Oh, and Extinction Rebellion was making the most noise when they had that awakening. And so that was the group that they joined. And they were a little bit oblivious to, you know, there's this massive ecosystem of people who are fighting within and without uh, the system, so to speak, uh, to, 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 fight climate, to fight climate change. And, you know, that includes the people who are gathering in Glasgow uh, right about now and for COP26. 
you know, I think a group like Extinction Rebellion would look at all those politicians and the NGO groups who are there uh, with with contempt. And and they would say, you know, well, the problem, you know, you guys are just a bunch of talk, but nothing's changing. We need to overthrow all our governments and, and change everything all at once. Uh, again, you know, on one level, they're right, but uh, I, 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 I personally look at COP26 and for all the criticisms that can be leveled at it, I see thousands of people who are trying to, you know, address this problem and working really hard and, and going through sleepless nights and, and really genuinely making an effort. And uh, so that's, that's where I sort of part ways with them and, and uh, yeah. You, you mentioned the word compromise, and maybe I can spur you on a bit more there. You know, you, one of the questions you explore in the book is, is compromise essential or fatal? You know, can, can change uh, be incremental? And, um, you know, is progress always slow? Just the nature of progress when done right, it takes deliberation and those things take time, or does it have to be sweeping and all at once to be worthwhile? Um, yeah. Did your experiences in researching this book, you know, your experiences in meeting with Extinction Rebellion and meeting with Heather, did they sway you one way or another? Uh, has your have your thoughts changed on the matter, uh, or, or where do you stand? I suppose. Uh, it really depends what day you ask me. But, <laughs> um, I think uh, I am like uh, I really sort of. I'm right on the brink of right, but where incrementalism becomes radical, I think I think we need hardcore, extreme incrementalism. Uh, but I still don't really trust the idea of revolution, partly because I don't, you know, I'm unaware of a. Well, there's a few, but there's not many revolutions that actually led to any kind of improvement. Usually, it's the bad guys who take over, and that's true of the Arab Spring. Um, you could say it's true of the American Revolution itself, which. <laughs> Uh, you know, was based on continuing slavery and, and all those things. Um, yeah, so I, I remain, and just, the, you know, the amount of damage that is done uh, in revolution, uh, I, I just sort of distrust it. But of course, incrementalism is extremely frustrating and totally incommensurate with the magnitude of change that we need if we want to preserve life on Earth. So it, it's a real bind. I, while I was writing this, you know, the American election was going on. And, and so for the first while of that, it was, you know, the, the conversation was, well, should we go for Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden, you know, and, and that sort of was this conversation. Do we go for the revolutionary or do we go for the incrementalist? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I still don't know if the right answer has, has been given to us, but I will say, I think Joe Biden surprised a lot of people at how much he has been willing to, you know, he has really embraced uh, a lot of the issues that progressives hold dear, and I think surprised people happily. Of course, uh, he is still totally being obstructed by Republicans and even, you know, Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema and his own party. But that would have been, I feel, the case with with Bernie Sanders. So, you know, every. I think this question comes up every time we have a we have an election in in Canada. We go, well, do we vote for the Liberals because we know they've got a chance of winning, or do we vote for the Green Party or the NDP mm -hmm. who are more radical? But then we've got you know we 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 run the risk of handing power back to the Conservatives who still don't believe in climate change. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to any of this stuff. You know, we are entering an age of of extremes. I think it's going to get crazier and crazier and I do think that, that people who have traditionally been seen as incrementalists are themselves going to embrace much more radical solutions and in fact as we're speaking you know Stephen Gibault has just become the environment minister mm -hmm. for Canada and I spoke to Stephen Gibault in 2019 right when he decided to run for politics I uh, interviewed him for the Narwhal magazine. And I just thought he was a really interesting character because here's the guy in nine, in 2001, he was an activist with Greenpeace and he scaled the CN Tower in Toronto and hung an enormous banner off the top of the CN Tower that read Canada climate killer, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he got arrested for it. So here's a guy who was a hardcore environmental radical activist 30 years, 20 years ago, 
And today he's fully crossed. So he, he basically embodies the two extremes from Extinction Rebellion to Heather McPherson. Mm-hmm. He went from being that, that guy getting arrested on the front lines and now he's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. So maybe the, the answer is that you know, radical change and incremental change are not mutually exclusive. That over the long haul, uh, there's, there's a place for both of them and even that both can be embodied in a single person. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been living through, uh, continue to be living through COVID, which uh, has shaken the sort of proverbial snow globe on a lot of things. It's, it's given, yeah. for one thing, it's given us the time to rethink the way we work, the way that our society is structured, where the imbalances lie. I think all of those have become more starkly uh, uh, noticeable. It's also, uh, as as with groups like Extinction Rebellion, uh, slowed things because people couldn't gather in the way that they could before. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's had all kinds of effects and still probably effects we haven't even thought about or, or spent time to really realize. Uh, but one one common theme about COVID is this idea about building back better, you know, that this is an opportunity that we have to hit the reset button a little bit and, and think about ways of doing things differently. Um, yeah. What do you hope that this time allows if we're going to change things about uh, how we uh, structure the way that we run things? Uh, what would you like to see different? Well, I guess I hope that politicians feel more bold in in what they can propose, you know, and whether that means you know, eliminating subsidies for fossil fuel, whether that means massively supporting the deployment of electric car infrastructure or transit, you know, those are just two, a few very minor things really, but uh, the scale of of change that is needed just to fight climate change um, requires some risk-taking for politicians. And I'm hoping that the soil has sort of been loosened enough in the public imagination. We were talking about imagination earlier. I guess I just told people's imaginations have been opened up from all walks of life and that we can use this moment to, to <laughs> so try, I'm laughing as I say, build back better. Uh, because, you know, unfortunately the truth is uh, build back better has also so far seems to mostly mean build back the way things were. Mm-hmm. Um, Quality so far seems to have been exacerbated by the pandemic because mm-hmm. we already had were the ones who could capitalize and are richer than ever now. And the, the poorer classes have just been further marginalized. So there's, you know, uh, uh, there, there's reason to be disheartened by what we've seen so far. Uh, however, it is still fairly early days. The pandemic is still here. I think everybody is still kind of reeling and climate change is just so intense and getting more so all the time for those your listeners are all over but you and i are here on the west coast and so now dramatic smoke is a part of every summer and fall for us um floods extinctions you know some of your listeners probably live in in areas where there's hurricanes or maybe there it's not just smoke but it's actual fire for them you know evacuations because of wildfire are now the leading cause of evacuation. Um, certainly in Canada, I don't know about the United States, but you know, climate refugees, when we often think of climate refugees being you know, Bangladeshis or Syrians or people who come from you know, some other continent, Marshall Islanders, they're, you know, they're, they're underwater or something like that. Uh, climate refugees are gonna be our own Canadian citizens who live in towns in forests and you know, this this last summer, people got the government of British Columbia asked British Columbians not to go to the interior uh, because the hotels there needed to be preserved for climate refugees, for people who are getting chased out of their homes by wildfires. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that these, in a dark way, I'm hopeful that the disasters I've just described, that the, the intensity of climate change and that it will not let us sort of forget and and just build back to the way things were, which is, you know, right now it sort of seems like that is in fact what is happening, but I am hopeful and this, you know, the current meeting in Glasgow um, will be one indication of of that. 
I'm hoping that radical change can still be in the air and that the pandemic has, you know, opened our imaginations to what's possible. And when I say our imaginations, I mean both voters and politicians and entrepreneurs um, to realize that, you know, extreme changes that we thought were totally unimaginable, like who could have imagined that the whole world would stop flying for weeks on end mm -hmm. like that? You know, we th th those kinds of extreme changes are, are coming and it's just whether they they happen by design going forward and we manage them to some extent or we just hope they won't come and then they come um, in the way that nature unleashes them on us, which will be much more painful. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how that's my rambling way of <laughs> <laughs> what I'm hoping for. And, and you know, uh, that this pandemic has opened up. In, in the book and in early in this conversation, you do describe yourself as an optimist. Uh, so what, what gives you hope? Uh, if, uh, you know, if you are hopeful, what, what's uh, the cause of that hope? Well, you know, I have hope and I have fear in, in roughly equal measure and, and the two oscillate uh, from day to day. But I, I think it's more of a temperament thing, to be honest. I, I've had a good life. I'm a privileged guy. I grew up white middle class in Edmonton in the late 20th century, which is like pretty much the top of the heap of our species. Uh, if you look at, take the long view. And I remember hearing Obama speak once and somebody asked him about his, you know, temperament, which is also pretty hopeful and optimistic. Uh, you know, the guy wrote a book about hope and, um, and he was sort of chuckling, comparing himself to his wife, Michelle Obama, who I think is, is a bit, uh, less less of a sort of hope as Sarah Palin, <laughs> but it will be uh, you know, and, and Obama was saying, well, she grew up, Michelle Obama grew up in, in Chicago, where there's a lot of darkness going on, especially, you know, 50 years ago, in especially in black communities, you know, there's just the, the scale of injustice and, and depression and racism was, was just everywhere. And and whereas Barack Obama grew up in Hawaii, you know, 500 yards from the beach, and you know, in his own words, he was like, he, he was like, yeah, I think that probably had a lot to do with my general disposition today. You know, like you grow up in the, the sort of happy environment, um, it gives you a bit of a happier outlook. You're a bit more predisposed to optimism, and I think that's that's true of myself. It's it's not necessarily a, a I haven't like analyzed the world and, and decided rationally and logically oh yes i'm i'm going to be hopeful um but I, I will say that and i touched on it earlier i think once you get involved in these stories and these issues of environmental you know sustainability and 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 progressive politics and and visions for the future there's just such an inspiring community of thinkers and, and artists and politicians and ngo you know, employees and leaders and activists. And th there are so many people who are doing such amazing work uh, that that alone sort of gives me hope. And, and uh, you know, I feel it would be almost dishonorable not to take some inspiration from this incredible, vibrant global community of people who are fighting to make this world inhabitable for our offspring. Anything I haven't asked you in the course of this conversation that you feel is um, important to add, pertinent to add uh, as we finish here? <laughs> you didn't ask me about Gunter Grass, uh, who is my German author extraordinaire, um, but you don't need to either. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say I have an essay at the end of my book that I'm still learning how to talk about because um, it's, a, it's a very personal essay. It's about... Uh, my own German heritage and it, it came about a little bit because my uh, well a lot of people in the climate fight compare climate change to World War II and Hitler um, for pretty clear reasons the scale of the challenge you know the number of people who could die from climate change um, and you know the need to mobilize our economies to produce not fighter jets now, but windmills and solar farms. Uh, so that analogy is is powerful, but a bit specious for me, or dangerous, perhaps I should say. 
um, partly because I, I worry about military metaphors mm. sometimes. Mm. And I, I don't think that climate change and environmental collapse, I, I fear just waging war on all of the challenges and turning every conflict into a, you know, a metaphor for violence. And I, I think violent language sort of begets violent thought and that begets violent conflict. Mm. And, and so I examined that in this essay about, you know, my mother was born in Germany, as it happens in 1940. And some of her earliest memories are of, you know, allied bombers flying low over the house when she was a little girl, uh, who would, the, when she was the age that my daughter is now, basically. And she remembers getting chased out of the house because the air raid siren went off and the whole family had to run out and go to the bomb shelter, but they couldn't reach the bomb shelter in time. So they dove under a pine tree and hid under this, the branches of a pine tree while all these bombers flew low and rumbled over the village. And, you know, I, I think about that when my own daughter now looks up at a plane and, and shrieks with delight. And I think about how when I was a kid learning, you know, growing up in Edmonton and, and learning about Germany and, and World War II and Nazis and the Holocaust. And I asked my mom, how did that, how did that happen? And she never really had a good answer. You know, for her, it was an abomination that Hitler took over Germany but it was also an aberration and it didn't define who Germany was. She felt that Germany had atoned for their sins and that was that. Um, my mother actually, she then told me she hadn't even heard of the Holocaust until she grew up and moved to North America in 1961. And you know, when I first heard that, I thought, well, that is crazy. How could you not have heard about the Holocaust when you grew up in a war-torn Germany? Like, mm -hmm. but, I was growing up in a country that hadn't said anything about residential schools mm -hmm. and was just becoming aware of that. And so I was developing these sort of vague but inarticulate, you know, feelings about the relationship between indifference and ignorance and complicity in these issues. And, and when I look at the storm clouds that are gathered on our century coming at us now that my daughter will inherit and that I still have a lifetime to, to struggle with. I think what Germany went through is very relevant to what we are now entering. And in fact, I think the question is less, how did we get into this? Uh, and more, how do we get out of it now? Mm -hmm. you know, we, there's, we know how Germany became, fell under the spell of Hitler. We know how our civilization has fallen under the spell of oil and uh, the question is, how do we now sort of wake up from those spells? And, and so I looked at how did Germany sort of, you know, after my mom left in the, the next generation of the 60s and 70s and 80s, how did they atone for the sins of their fathers and mothers? And, and one of the ways they did it was to, was to sort of reinvent the German language. And the writer Gunter Grass, who is a Nobel laureate, he wrote The Tin Drum and a million beautiful essays, uh, he was one of a leading generation of German authors who really sort of rewrote the German language. And, you know, as he put it, he took, took the goose step out of it. So there was, you know, the Nazis had really sort of corrupted language itself in Germany and all of these phrases like the final solution. And uh, they just sort of militarized and, and, and filled the, the language with violence. And, and so Gunter Grass really deliberately, along with a bunch of other writers, started writing stories and essays in a way that emphasized not violence and conflict, but, you know, harmony and humor and absurdity. And, and, and he didn't just write harmonious, happy children's tales, but, but he, he was very deliberate in the way that, that he approached language. And even he wrote about, you know, how will, he has one essay in which he says, how will, you know, writers now have a new task, which is to write not about war and the conflicts of war but peace that unexplored territory mm. and he and he asks you know what what are some of the challenges of that well who will and he and he started talking about you know who will write about the poisoning of lake constance and and all and he wrote a few other environmental examples and it, it really struck me that in turning his eyes away from war and conflict he started to develop a language for environmental writing and environmental consideration and I just thought that was really fascinating and heartening and, and relevant for the struggles that we have today and the way that we think and write and, and speak 
about the issues uh, confronting our generation. Yeah, and, and it makes me think too about, um, you know, if, if some of this work is just about awareness for some of us, uh, awareness of privilege, certainly, awareness of uh, complicity, uh, I know it's not, uh, awareness isn't a solution itself, but perhaps it's a beginning uh, towards other things as well and real real action too. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an essential starting point and not to be sniffed at and it might not be enough, but uh, um, yeah, I think it's a place to start in language. You know, we all do it where you're killing it. You're, you're how did it go? I slayed it, you know, people ask me mm -hmm. that. And so I think, and I, I certainly do it, um, but I think becoming aware of the way we speak and, and what, what we're implying without realizing it and, and how we approach the world, um, I think is a very valid starting place. And for many of us who are overwhelmed at the scale of the problem and wondering what we can do, uh, well, becoming aware is a very uh, enabling first step and starting to pay attention to the world around us. And, and yeah, I think that's something that's available to everybody, no matter what station of life you're in. Arno, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Uh, so great to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Arno, his book, The Environmentalist's Dilemma, is out now through ECW Press. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. It helps to keep this show going. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. <laughs>